John chapter 11. And we're going to begin actually in verse 45 and read on into chapter 12. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That He will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where He was, He should let them know so that they might arrest Him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. You know, the other day I was watching on the news and seeing some of the things happening around our world, and it was specifically regarding Israel. And Israel, as you know, was viciously attacked by a terrorist organization, Hamas, slaughtering about 1,500 innocents, civilians. And it's amazing to see what comes out of that. As uh, even you have organizations and groups now blaming Israel for the slaughter of Israel's own people. It's astounding to watch the news coverage. And what I was watching was actually talking about back here at home. And it's looking at some of our universities and, and campuses and things. And you have all these different groups that have come out to support Palestinians and voicing their grievances against Israel. And then you have, of course, Jewish students that feel threatened by that and and you have others that come to the defense of Israel to stand up for that. And, and as you were watching this take place, there was a, like a demonstration. And pretty quickly this demonstration got into some pushing and shoving and tending toward violence. As I was watching some of these things, I thought, that's pretty much what Jerusalem was like at this moment where Christ is coming. Because Christ has been doing these amazing signs both in, out, inside Jerusalem and outside of Jerusalem. 
and even up into Galilee. And John has tracked these eight signs that Christ does to demonstrate who he is. And what you see is a lot of struggle for people to try to comprehend what's going on and, and people having differences of opinions on who he is and what he's doing. We've seen it from all the way back at John chapter 6. We, we recognized it. In verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. So some people seeing the signs that he was doing said, This has got to be the guy. In chapter 7, verse 12, it says, And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said no. He's leading the people astray. So you see a, a division that's happening among the people. Some people are in favor of him. Some people are against him. Verse 25 of chapter 7 says, Some of the people in Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Verses 30 and 31, it says, So they were seeking to arrest him. That's the authorities. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? In verses 40 and 44 of chapter 7, it says, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that when Christ comes from the offspring of David, and comes from Bethlehem, the village of David was. And if they would have just looked into it, they would have had the answer to that. There was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Chapter 9, verse 16, we also find that some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. Remember, he healed somebody on the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. And when we get to our passage here today in John chapter 11, we find that same division. It says, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, talking about raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So you got people that were actually there, present at the tomb of Lazarus, when Lazarus had been in there for four days, and even when Jesus said, open the tomb, they open the tomb anyway, and He calls Lazarus forth, and He comes out. And What a picture of the Gospel. In fact, what a picture of what He had just taught us about the shepherd-sheep relationship. My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me, and I give them eternal life. What does He do with Lazarus? He goes up to the tomb, and He calls out Lazarus, and His sheep heard His voice, and Jesus knows Him, and He followed Him. He came right out of the tomb, alive again from the dead. And so it's a beautiful picture of the Gospel. You know, the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. It's the same thing that Jesus does with us in our living bodies. Same thing He did with Lazarus and His dead ones. And He speaks and we hear that call of God in our life and we put our faith in Jesus Christ and He gives us eternal life. But you know what? There's a division. Jesus said that the result of His coming, even though He said it many times that His coming was to save sinners, He recognized that His coming would result in division. He even said it at least one point that He did not come to bring peace, but it would bring a sword. A sword that would divide people, divide even families, unfortunately. Why? Well, because when you hear the Gospel proclaimed and one person believes and another person does not, automatically there's kind of a division there. You have now a believer and an unbeliever. You now have a child of God and somebody who's not. 
And so there's a division that takes place. Well, that's exactly what's happening uh, in Jerusalem at that time is this division. Some people are putting their trust in Him. Some people are saying this has got to be the guy. And others are saying, no way, this isn't Him. Now, in this passage that we have before us, uh, what is the division that we see? Many Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what He did, believed in Him. It says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Well, it kind of depends on why they went to the Pharisees, right? How we see this other group of people. Did they go to the Pharisees because the Pharisees were the religious leaders and so they would need to give their endorsement or approval of Christ? And so they're looking to the Pharisees and say, hey, look, isn't this the guy? Show him in a positive way. I don't think so. I think by this time, the Pharisees are obviously set and confirmed in their rejection of Christ. And I don't think anybody thinks that the Pharisees are going to come around to embracing Christ. Uh, we, we see that just because of the Pharisees' actions and attitudes beforehand, they, they tried to stone him on occasion. They tried to arrest him a couple of times. These are, they're obviously not in favor. And they've had plenty of ample opportunity to look into what he was doing and what he was teaching. John chapter 9, if you remember from back there in verse 22, this is after the guy was, who had been born blind was given sight. It says his parents said these things. Now what his parents had said was, they said, is this your son? And was he born blind? They said, and how was he healed? And they said, this is our son. He was born blind. How he was healed, we don't know. Ask him. And the reason they told him to ask him was because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. And so what do we make of this group that went off running to snitch to the Pharisees? Well, that's what they were doing. They weren't thinking the Pharisees were going to embrace Christ. They weren't thinking that they would have the, the news of the Messiah that was come. These are people that obviously rejecting the miracle. Even though they saw Lazarus come back from the dead after four days, they still were hard in, in their unbelief and went to the Pharisees to tell them what happened so that they could know what they were going to have to be dealing with. And the Pharisees even digress from there. Everything just kind of starts to head downhill. Now, why is it so tense? Why is it getting so heated? Actually, it's the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead that will directly lead to a fast track to the cross. Why? It's because of the ramifications. It's because of the kingdom. What kind of a kingdom are we going to live in? That's really, when I think about what's going on here, that's what it's about. Even though John doesn't quite emphasize this like Matthew does, when you look at Matthew's Gospel, it's very clear in other Gospels that Jesus was going around preaching the kingdom, presenting the kingdom. John the Baptist had started it. He started, he came and he began preaching the kingdom. Why? Because the king is at hand. He's coming right behind John the Baptist. And so if the king is on his way, that means the kingdom is on its way. And Jesus was proclaiming the kingdom. What's that kingdom going to be like? Well, you know, when you stop and think about it, that's really what John's been communicating. John unfolds these signs before us. And he says, these aren't all of them. These are just a sample of them. But what do we see within those signs? We see Jesus turn water into wine at a wedding feast. The wine was a symbol, a symbol of joyous times, prosperity and flourishing and marriages and happy families. And he also walked on the water, which is what? A kind of an overcoming of nature. If you, you find other miracles like that, when you look at other Gospels, you'll find a man that's able to calm a storm with his voice. And so he has a power over nature. We see him have power over handicaps. He makes a lame person be able to walk, a blind person be able to see. He heals somebody's son who's at the doorsteps of death. So he overcomes illnesses. He takes one boy's lunch and he feeds over 5,000 people. 
You know, you start to put all these things together and it culminates in Lazarus as being resurrected from the dead and he overcomes even death itself and brings life. And so as Jesus Christ is coming and his kingdom is coming, and we're going to see a direct connection to it in John here in just a moment, he's presenting a kingdom that has no hunger because he fed the multitudes. He's presenting a kingdom of prosperity and a bright future, happiness and joy, like at the wedding feast. He's presenting a kingdom where there's no handicaps, there's no illness, there's no even natural disasters. He's presenting the kingdom that we're still looking forward to because the Jewish people rejected it at that moment. That's what he's presenting. And so we still have that to look forward to at his second coming. But that's what he's presenting. Here's the question. Why in the world wouldn't you want a kingdom like that? He's fulfilling all the things that the politicians always promise. That they're going to take care of the needs of the poor and the, and the hungry and, and that they're going to help us with the health care and they're going to help us. With... He's fulfilling all those things. And uh, oh no, we can't have a guy like this. Well, coming right around the corner in chapter 12 here, we're going to see Jesus come into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry and He is literally at that time presenting Himself as King to Israel. You see, that's why I've labeled our sermon this morning responses to the kingdom because it's building to that point. All these signs that have pointed to who He is and and culminating in the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead and then Jesus coming into Jerusalem with all the hubbub being about Him. Even when He's not there yet, is He going to be here? Do you think He'll show up? These people are looking to kill Him. In fact, they want everybody as informants to tell Him when He gets it down so they can go arrest Him. Is He going to come or is He going to not come? And everything's buzzing about Him. And as we look at the responses of the kingdom, it's divided. Heaven on earth or continue under the Roman Empire? They chose the Roman Empire. The responses get broken down into two categories. It's very simple. The same thing that John has been pushing for and that he mentions 80 times throughout the Gospel is it comes down to believing. Believing in Christ, putting your faith in Him or not. And the first reaction that we're going to deal with or response to the kingdom is that of unbelievers. In unbelievers, it's interesting as we see and watch the, the discussions unfold, and the first thing that we stands out to us is their motivation. Their motivation was, uh, first of all, personal. It was a personal motivation. Who was leading the resistance, if you will? The religious leaders. And they were looking personally at what they had to gain from it, is what I'm saying. In verses 47 and 48, it says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. That's an amazing statement. Because it really helps to verify the truth and the reality of the cross and of Christ's ministry. They do not argue that no sign was committed. They would be stupid to do that. Because they're dealing with people that were there that saw it. And they also recognize the the logical outcome. The logical outcome is if this continues, everybody's going to believe. There isn't going to be anybody that doesn't follow this guy if this continues like it is. You know, you'd think at that point you'd say, I better get on board, right? But they they don't go that route. He says, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both, now notice first, our place. Our place. You see, they enjoyed uh, some amount of freedom within the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire would often let people, lands that they took over and brought into the empire, they would often let them keep like their gods as long as you also bowed to Caesar. And as long as there are no uprisings, they'd let you keep some of your cultural freedoms that you were used to. And the Jewish people enjoyed that kind of an arrangement. They were allowed to actually keep their own laws and punish evildoers, except they could not perform capital punishment, which is why they need to get Rome involved with Christ. The council that meets here in an emergency meeting is the Jewish ruling council, otherwise called the Sanhedrin. 
It's a group of religious leaders of Israel, and they are, are able to conduct and lead the nation in this way, both religiously and politically. And so they have that kind of freedom. And what did they just say? They said, if we don't get this in order, if we don't put an end to him, they're going to take away our place. In other words, we're not going to be able to have this religious, this council anymore. We're not going to be able to be the leaders. We're going to lose our position. We see the same things in our politicians, don't we? Is that they do whatever they got to do to hang on to the position. Hang on to the power. And a lot of the, a lot of the job of a politician is to vie for positions of power. If you don't have the position of power, you can't get your your things that you want rolling to roll. The first thing they recognize, we're going to lose our position. But then notice, not only was it personal, it's also very political. It's very political. He says, we will lose our place and our nation. They're looking at this thing very politically. And you know what? In a sense, they should have been looking at it politically to some extent. Because the fact of the matter is, is they were underneath the Roman Empire and Rome did not allow uprisings. And so what they're afraid of is if enough people get on believing in Christ, it's going to end up causing an uprising. And with the miracles that he's doing, people are going to start to feel invincible and they're going to challenge Rome. All the care that these people were taking didn't hold. Because actually when you get up to AD 66 through 70, right up in there, the Jewish people started getting a little bit proud and thinking they could throw off Roman rule. And they gave it a shot and they failed miserably and Jerusalem was sacked. Remember Christ told them of those buildings, every stone would be overturned. That's what happened. As Rome went through and plundered the place, they literally turned over every stone, collecting anything of value that they could get. And Israel was laid desolate, or Jerusalem was, in AD 70. And that's what they're worried about at this moment. The Romans will come in and sweep through and take us. You know what? They're probably right to an extent. In the sense that if, if Jesus would have risen in prominence and become the king of Israel, do you think Jesus really would have stayed underneath Roman rule? I think if the Jewish people, I think when he offered the kingdom to them, it was a legitimate offer. And if they would have taken it, the millennial kingdom would have started then. But they rejected it, so it gets pushed back to later. Now, what would have happened? It's all speculation, but the best speculation I've read on it is that if Jews would have embraced Jesus, he would have become the king. They would have put him on the throne. Rome would not have tolerated it. They would have come in, probably crucified Christ, because we've got to have the crucifixion for the salvation of our sins. They probably would have crucified Christ, but upon his resurrection, you probably would have had the battle of Armageddon, and this would have, we'd be in the kingdom long since by now. But, like I said, that's all speculation, so I don't want to spend too much time on that. Because that's not what happened. It wasn't God's plan, and that's not what unfolded. They're worried about this very politically. Now, what they should have done is just looked at Christ and seen the signs and embraced Him no matter what the fallout. That would have been to their best interest. But instead, they pit themselves against Christ, and in doing so, they pit themselves against God. You know, it's kind of interesting because it mentions Caiaphas here. Caiaphas comes into the picture and they bring it to him. They have the, the, the emergency council meeting. And the, the Pharisees are who's been fighting the battles predominantly so far. Sadducees mix in with them a little bit. The Pharisees are more kind of your common folk a little bit, but they're the religious leaders. They're educated. The Sadducees are like your wealthy aristocrats, but, but they have the temple. They have the priesthood. And so they have a lot of power that way. But they're a little more aloof from the average ordinary citizen. But Caiaphas, Caiaphas comes in, and he's a, he's a Sadducee, being the high priest. Now, being a Sadducee, he would, first of all, he doesn't believe in resurrection. So he does not want the thing with Lazarus. He wants to ignore that as best he can. Not only that, but being a Sadducee and being the high priest, he was coercing with Rome. Right? He had to work with Rome in his leadership a little bit. Because, see, the high priest was supposed to be a lifetime appointment. But what had happened was Rome didn't feel comfortable leaving one person in 
that strong of a position for that long. So the Roman governors would often come in and say, no, your term's over as high priest. And so they'd have to appoint a new high priest. Caiaphas would be the high priest from the year AD 18 to AD 36, which was a long term as high priest, which means he had to kind of favor Rome quite a bit. He had to give concessions to Rome to be able to keep that position. And that's exactly what he's trying to do here. He doesn't want any hot water with Rome to come in and take, kick him out as a high priest and to take away their nation. So it was very, very political. Their methods also, we see within the passage, their methods, first of all, was to silence. Silence. What's the goal here? They're trying to, they're trying to put Christ in a box. They're trying to keep Him away from the public. They're trying to get people not to follow Him. And to get people not to believe in Him, you have to put a cap on these miracles. You can't just be roaming around free and doing those things. But then that also becomes very quickly violent. Caiaphas almost looks like he's probably is losing his temper a little bit. He says, you people don't know anything at all. He says, it's more expedient that one person dies to save the nation. We've got to kill him. And everybody gets on board with that. And so it quickly becomes violent. You see what I'm talking about when I was watching the news this week and thinking through these passages and realizing, wow, you can see some of the same kind of things going on. Where What is our discussion about pretty much what the kingdom is going to be like? What the political landscape and what the decisions are going forth and what our society is going to look like going into the future? That's why these things get so heated. And what uh, kind of motivation? What well, Some people have personal motivation, very many political ambitions. Methods that we've seen thrown around in our nation, silence the other side. Why, do, why when we have issues with North Korea, a possible threat from China, a war between Russia and Ukraine, and the massacre, and the now, now war between Israel and Hamas and the Hezbollah up in Lebanon? Uh, that's more going on across the globe than I've seen in an awful long time. And we've been just told recently, no, keep your eye on global warming. That's the real threat. Why? Silence. No, we're not going to talk about that. We're not going to think about that. We're going to think about this. Let's think about this over here. And things escalating into more and more violence. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. We're just going to take this guy and kill him. You know, in John 11:53. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, there were times before where on the spur of the moment, they tried. But this time, they're digging in, and the council is brainstorming, and they're going to they're gonna get this taken care of. John 8:59 saw times where they tried to stone him. In 10:31, they tried to stone him again. Chapter 10, verse 39, they tried to arrest him, but he escaped. You know, and even when we get up into chapter 12, it says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Him, but also to see Lazarus. These are people that weren't there, but they want to see the guy that was dead and is now alive. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of Him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Notice that. As soon as the decision is made to kill Jesus, the next decision to kill comes a lot easier, doesn't it? You know, one thing that always amazed me about this passage is why did you think that would work? The whole point is he just got raised from the dead and your answer is to kill him again? I wouldn't be overly optimistic about the, about the success of that venture. Maybe they killed Jesus first and then Lazarus so Jesus isn't there to raise Lazarus from the dead. But then he raised himself from the dead. That's a problem too. But the, the violence is just increasing. That's the point. They're becoming more and more violent. In John chapter 12, when we get to verses 17 through 19, it says, The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard 
he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. They are in a, kind of a tizzy here. In fact, originally they wanted to wait and crucify Christ after the Passover because they didn't want it during the Jewish holiday where you got more and more people in town to deal with. But God's plan was, because Christ is our Passover lamb, that He would die on the Passover. And so the, the heat gets turned up and they have to deal with it as quickly as they can and they end up putting Him to death right at the Passover time. Well, in John 11, verses 51 and 52, He did not say this on His own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. And you know, that's the awesome thing about, about God. No matter how much you try to kick against him, you only fulfill his purpose. When you're seeing all this unbelief and this hatred and this uh, silencing and this violence, you know what? We win in the end. That's just all there is to it. God's purposes will be fulfilled. Caiaphas was actually right, but in a different way than what he meant it. His words, the Bible says that God actually spoke through Caiaphas because he was a high priest. He had him prophesy this, that this is what needs to happen. One needs to die for the many. And that's what Jesus has come to do, is to die for the sins of mankind. To gather not just Israel and not even just scattered Israel, but even the Gentiles with the gospel into his kingdom. Well, then also we see the other perspective is that of the believers. The as the believers respond, we see several things happen. And it's all at this one feast. And so the first way that I say that we see it unfolding, it describes the whole passage of this early part of chapter 12, and that is that they celebrated. Jesus comes back to Bethany. This is the town where Mary and Martha lived and Lazarus lived and where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And what do they do? They celebrate. They set a table and they put out a big meal, kind of like what we just did last night for Harvest Supper, what we're going to do again at Thanksgiving time and Christmas time. Christmas time. And they just celebrated a life that Jesus had given back to Lazarus. Get some attention, apparently, because people come from around to see Lazarus and to see this thing take place. Well, not only did they celebrate it, but they served. We see that in Martha. Within Martha, it says in chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, so they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served. And then we also see something from Mary. We see a sacrifice given from Mary because she takes this pound of precious perfume. In fact, they say that it's a 300 denarii, which is about the average average person's year's salary. So this is a sandy thing that she does. And she pours it and anoints Christ with this perfume. The believers celebrate this kingdom. In fact, we anxiously await it. The believers, in the meantime, what do we do? We serve. It's kind of interesting because Mary and Martha actually kind of fitting to their personalities. Again, if you remember there is another time, not in the Gospel of John, but the, one of the other Gospels, that talks about when Jesus was at their house before and Martha was serving. And Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus that time too. And Martha got a little bit bent out of shape about that because she's, she's trying to make sure the dinner's right and everything, but he has what they need and, and everything looks just right and everything's taken care of just fine. And That's just Martha, right? And Mary is just sitting at the feet of Christ soaking it in. And Martha is like, you want to talk to my sister? She really should be helping me out here as she's under a little stress. And Jesus says, settle down, Martha. Mary's actually chosen a better thing right now. And I'm going to take that away from her. Well, this time it's kind of similar because Martha's serving. Mary's back at the feet of Jesus again. And they're both kind of doing what they're built for. But there's no squabble this time. I think it's because Martha's worshiping through serving. And Mary's worshiping through sacrificing. And both of them 
are necessary. How does this apply to us? Well, obviously, the first thing John's pushing toward is that we, that we believe. And we believe that we are in that group, that we put our faith in Christ. And because of that belief, then what do we do? Well, we celebrate. You know, the first of every month, we get out the Lord's Supper and we have the bread and the juice. And that's a celebration. Celebration of what Christ did for us and laying down His body on that cross for us. And then rising again. Why do we sing songs when we come? This is a celebration. You know why church is held on the first day of the week? It's because Christ rose again from the dead on the first day of the week. That's why this every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's exactly what this whole feast ends up pointing to. Jesus says, no, you don't realize what she's doing. She's anointing me for burial. And he's looking forward to his death, burial, and resurrection. We need to celebrate. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins, rose again from the dead. By faith in him, we have eternal life. And that's worth celebrating. We need to serve. And we need to sacrifice because He sacrificed for us.